Hello, welcome to Criterion Lucip. I'm Mark Herney here with Aaron West as always. Aaron, good to talk to you as always. How are you? You you too. That was uh that was a terrible like a, a Clouseau kind of uh, uh impression. I don't <laughs> Oh, is that what that was? Okay. <laughs> no, it, it just I don't know. I just said it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll take your word for it. We'll go with it. Well, we're here on Criterion Close Up. It wasn't intended to be that, but I think that's how it <laughs> oh, came <I> see. out. <laughs> <laughs> Extrapolating from there. Uh, well, we're here on episode number 57 and episode two of our French 1930s series. So we will be getting into, uh, it was part two of seven. So this will be a long running mm-hmm. series, which is great. Maybe, maybe eight, maybe nine. <laughs> <laughs> maybe <see>. 20. <laughs> and it's part one right. of Renoir. So uh, yeah. part one of two, maybe three. Yeah. Maybe, maybe eight. We'll, we'll see. S- we'll <laughs> see how we break it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, covering a lot of films today, but uh, like you said, the early Renoir. So, yeah, yeah from his well, we're going to talk about the silent films and uh, really up through his sound films, really the middle period of the '30s. Uh, so a good uh, as he cut his teeth with silent film and then cut his teeth with sound film and kind of uh, established his style. Which uh, and of course the latter part is where he's most well known especially Grand Illusion, Rules right. of the Game. So I think this is more of a, a place setter for that, uh, and that'll be something we'll dig into later. Yeah, definitely. About 10 years' worth or so, you know, from the yeah the silent to the sound is, uh, of what we're covering. Or and, really uh, 40 years' worth since we're going to go to his birth. So Truth, yes. <laughs> even, <laughs> even farther, 100 years with his dad. So That's right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit, but uh, yeah, and you know, we did say this is part two, and just wanted to mention uh, part one where we talked about uh, that. Goes back to episode, I think it was number fifty. Um, mm-hmm. We we did talk about a little bit the silent to sound transition for uh, the uh, the French series of films. We did get into Jacques Feder and Jean Vigo a bit. Uh, we had Scott and I on that episode. So that was a lot of fun. Good good ground setting episode like that one. Yeah, a big episode. And and I think some of that that we talked about here, especially the, the sa- silent to sound, will, will come in. There's there's parallels with Renoir and the, uh, the filmmakers we talked about there. So yeah, yeah if you haven't heard that, uh, I can't remember how long it is. It's definitely under two hours, but um, yeah. Probably a little, a little longer, longer than about. most, but uh, and and this will be too. It's a big topic. So. Yeah, lots of lots to cover. So, but yeah, but uh, you know, we transition into um, you know we uh, we we did want to mention a couple of disclaimers too that uh, we are we. Uh, we do we do our best, but we are not uh, French-born people. So <laughs> yes, uh, we uh, are. In fact, I took French in, in high school, not college, and uh, might but. And I watch French movies usually one, two a week, but my pronunciation is horrific. So uh, I actually had to test some words on my wife, and I, I don't think I'll get them on the sh- oh. right on the show. So yeah, uh, don't it's, hate. It's tough. Appreciate. <laughs> That's right. We'll, we'll do our best. I took. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I took French in in high school, so I I uh, you know I I do my best, and uh, sometimes it comes out right, sometimes it doesn't. So yeah, and I think we'll probably gravitate towards the American American titles uh, just so that we're not struggling the whole time and, and things will go smoothly. So if you right. uh, are a purist and you want us to say a party de campaign, <laughs> I, that was probably terrible there. <laughs> well, apologies. It's going to be a day in the country. That's right. So. <laughs> Excellent. And p- probably should mention our sources, too. Uh, I have to give a shout-out to Chris Faulkner. Uh, I, I actually haven't talked to him about it this episode, although I did talk to him about the last one. 
but I relied very heavily on his uh, his biography of Renoir, which is actually a Tashin book. Mm. So it's uh, I've, I've read other uh, another biography and some other uh, little things about Renoir, but I uh, his is really concise and and there's a lot of images. And Tashin books are just wonderful. You yeah. know, it's it's weird prepping with this big, huge coffee table book. Right. Uh, but, <laughs> Hard to take it I, with you, but yeah. Yeah, but I made it work. And uh, so I, I pulled a lot of quotes from Chris, and uh, he's kind of in the... Um, in the in the background of the series anyway so uh, d- did you use any sources for this or? i did yeah my main one i went back again to uh i had it from the library and just said well i might as well buy it uh the alan williams book uh, republic of images so he mm-hmm. does have some some sections there where he he calls out various periods of renoir so did use that and i, I briefly used uh, a book i got from someone from work who'd taken a, f- a french class and again very briefly it's a dictionary of filmmakers this is actually uh um, from Georges Sadoul, um, and something that was translated at one point to English. So nice little old, old book, but uh, yeah, just a little bit from that. Yeah, and th- there is a, a French biography of Renoir. I think it's like a thousand pages or something that is not translated yet. So that's, mm. uh, unfortunately, that's not available to us, but ho- hopefully we need to get day. on that, Aaron. Well, let's let's get that translated. What do you hey, think? That's, a, that's a way to brush up on your French. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Translate this. This uh, phone book. Yeah, you could so, definitely uh, use that. And uh, I, I have that Alan Williams book too, but I, I didn't use it here. But I did use a lot of Criterions. Um, so um, I, I had seen most of the films we're going to talk about, not all. Uh, and, and I got to some of them, but uh, a lot of them are not fresh on my memory. I didn't rewatch all 10, 15, uh, but you kind of did, right? Yeah, I went on a little binge. Um, you know, it's something that I, I like to do. Uh, Aaron and I were talking about this offline is, you know, I, I love doing kind of marathon watching as time allows. And the Thanksgiving break gave me uh, a bit of a chance to do that. So a number of these films, I'd only seen Voodoo Save from Drowning before, and, uh, you know, looking at some of these sets, I have the three-disc collector's edition for some of the silence and delve uh, into, I watched Tony, which is, again, out of print, Masters of Cinema. Check that out. La Chienne, which has uh, Purge Bebe on it, and A Day in the Country. So mm-hmm. luckily, most of these films are short, so it did right, help. Right, yeah, they are. <laughs> it did well, help for, the binge. Except for Nana, uh, not so short. Uh, we'll get into that. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's a... I, I'll, as we get to the end, I'd like to hear your take on, uh, you know, maybe we can, you know, kind of throw out our favorite films from these period, this period. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of favorite, you know, Aaron, one of the questions I have is I know you are a, I mean, Renoir is your favorite director. So, you know, as we lead into this, I'm just curious uh, why that is. You know, I, that, I don't know that Renoir is my favorite director, but okay, uh, he's definitely up there. Um, I think Renoir was kind of my one of my avenues to art film, uh, and, and we've talked about it on, on the Criterion Completion episode. Uh, really, Grand Illusion is that was my my first Renoir film. Actually, Boudou, Save from Drowning was my first, but my hmm, Grand too. Illusion, hmm. yeah. So, Grand Illusion was really my entryway into art films, uh, foreign art films, and uh, I remember just being kind of wowed by it hmm. at first. You know, it, what is this? Uh, it's, it's so different, different aesthetically from. And this is the early '90s. From stuff that's coming out, uh, you know, the, even the indies. Quentin Tarantino is not exactly poetic or realist. Uh, so um, there is a humanity there. There's a there's an aesthetic. Uh, he he has a style, a, a gorgeous style that um, it's kind of 
tranquil in a way, mm-hmm. but also inter- interesting, entertaining, um, and so and he's pretty consistent, especially his '30s work, uh, pretty consistently good. Yeah. So yeah, I, good uh, point. those two films, Grand Illusion, Rules of the Game, are are highlights for me. But pretty much his entire library is. Uh, is is pretty good and and I think and I like French film period I found that to be kind of my niche, so I, I think he kind of punctuates, uh, especially the early French film, uh, everything in that those movements. So yeah, certainly influential too. Yeah, it's that's a good point. It, it's interesting that you know the Grand Illusion is kind of your. Uh, art house gateway drug whereas mine i've talked about before is jewels and gems so you always have a soft spot for that that gateway drug sure sure (laughs) and uh, really my first real gateway was coen brothers barton fink but uh that was just an art film but grand illusion to for an art film sure yeah to to, you know not being afraid to read your movies (laughs) right right and then wild strawberries and i could go on so uh, (laughs) yeah there there it was just a, a huge universe opened up now there have been hundreds, maybe thousands. I don't know. So, uh, yeah. Excellent. Cool. That's good, good to know. Yeah. Be, be interested to see, you know, some more about how that informed you. So, mm-hmm. cool. All right. Well, we're going to transition to, uh, of course, we'll start with the origins of Renoir. And uh, the origins of Renoir are really with his father, right? Because, you know, mother, father, that's kind of how people get started, right? People, yeah. Yeah, so, that's. Uh, do we need to get into the birds and the bees for this? <laughs> we, we probably should, right? <laughs> when a man loves a woman. <laughs> Are you going to sing Michael Bolton now? Okay. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm never going to let you down, Mark. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he, you know, he started working. Um, Jean Renoir started working a little bit in the shadow of his father. So his father was Pierre Auguste uh, Renoir who lived until, well, he, he was working uh, in the 1800s and, uh, of course, died in about 1919, I believe it is. And I did get a little bit of help from our friends at Wikipedia for some of the, uh, the stuff here, so thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> he, he, was, um, I mean, he was a leading uh, painter of the, uh, uh, in the development of the Impressionist style, um, and uh, I, I liked how he's uh, he's a celebrator of beauty, especially uh, feminine sensuality. So he did he would paint a lot of uh, ordinary subjects, and of course there was a lot of use of, um, or I should say, he did a lot of uh, female nudes as one of his uh, primary subjects. Yeah, one one of the, so. the the funniest anecdotes I found in in my reading was uh, when uh, when Renoir went to school uh, near Paris uh, later. And uh, and he said all the kids were uh, you know really into women and nudity uh, and to him it was it was no big deal because he'd been seeing nude nude women all his life he didn't he didn't get what the what the fuss was about so right of course he he had a couple marriages so I think ultimately he did get it but uh, <laughs> I, I guess that he wasn't shocked by nudity uh, he saw it quite often right yeah. Yeah, and he, you know, and he was a very popular painter. I mean, his dad, um, you know, again, yeah. very, very important. Uh, some of the the things that I, I was kind of reading about the impressionist and thinking about how it in, influenced maybe the visual style of uh, Jean with you know maybe unusual visual angles. I don't know if that really gets into what um, you know Jean did with his films, but there's also um, talk of the inclusion of movement movement. Uh, in human perception and experience. So, you know, I can see that as, I mean, 
movies are moving images, right? So, sure. um, you know, there could be some, um, see some influence there. And a lot of, really what stood out to me, of course, was the nudes, but also the the, <laughs> the, the light and saturated color that he used. So, mm-hmm. yeah, really uh, good Yeah, film. he's he's quite a painter. I, I've, mm-hmm. I've seen a couple of, of his. He's, he's, he is seen as one of the, the kings of Impressionism. And uh, he, he also did a lot of landscapes, too, uh, in the French countryside, which I will come into play later. I, I think that you, it's safe to say that Jean did adopt some of the aesthetic from his, his father into his work. And, and really, how could he help it? He, he, that's what he was raised with. And, uh, and right. of course, that helped finance him a little bit, uh, is his father's work, So w- which we'll get into. And in fact, wh- why not? Why don't we get into it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So uh, Jean Renoir uh, was born in 1894 in uh, a place I've been, uh, Montmartre, <laughs> in uh, Montmartre, or Montmartre. Is that Montmartre. how you say it? Yeah, That's, I, it's. Uh, I, I think I think you had it right the second time, Montmartre. Yeah, but, the uh, the T R E there throws me. I've been there and I've heard it pronounced, but it's tough. Yeah, uh, T R E stuff. Kind of a, a bohemian part of uh, France, a lot of artists, a lot of culture. That's where uh, the Moulin Rouge is, for example. That's where Toulouse-Lautrec is from, uh, kind of a little suburb of France. Uh, it's a neat little place, but that's that's where he was born. Uh, he was born to, of course, uh, Pierre-Auguste uh, Renoir and uh, Aline Charigot. Charigot. Hmm. So, uh, and, and as you mentioned, uh, Pierre-Auguste was a very famous painter, and so he was raised in sort of a, a life of luxury in a way. Uh, Pierre Auguste was recognized in his time, not unlike some other artists. And I just kind of wrote down some of the famous people that um, that Jean met when he was a child. Uh, Emile Zola, Paul Cezanne, uh, Guy de Maupassant, uh, which is interesting. He would later do a Maupassant uh, uh, adaptation. So uh, so yeah, he, he knew a lot of famous people. Uh, actually, he adapted Emile Zola as well. And uh, and so as a child, he did. Uh, he was amused for his father. He posed often for uh, paintings. And in fact, if you just just Google Jean Renoir posing for Auguste Renoir, uh, Pierre Auguste Renoir, you'll f- probably find uh, plenty of images. Uh, you, you'll see he had uh, long hair, mm. uh, kind of uh, uh, precious locks. Uh, I think he was his father cherished those locks. Um, and Which he, then he, he lost later in life, obviously, but <laughs> he did. He, he lost. Yes, uh, we don't and, see uh, that Renoir very much, but yeah, yeah. But he did. He did get portly, kind of like his uh, his his uh, baby self, hmm. little little chubby there. Uh, yeah. But uh, and uh, he was very close with uh, Gabriel Renard, uh, his cousin, who was uh, also his nanny, and she kind of influenced him a, a good bit. Uh, she was basically his caretaker. You know, not that his parents were not around, but she was the closest to him, and uh, right. and she kind of mentored him with uh, with uh, probably his film uh, tastes later. Uh, she would show him puppet shows, marionettes when he was a child, and uh, and I think that kind of planted the seeds. He actually was not a huge film buff as a child, uh, unlike you know, a lot of other auteurs. Mm-hmm. But yeah, being part of the art community, I, th- I think it was not something that was strange to him. Uh, and of course, Gabriel living in that household—that's uh, probably you—you you can't live there and not pose. So she would pose uh, with for paintings as well. I, I think she actually did some nudes, uh, probably uh, around young Jean, uh, and they actually posed together too. If you just 
again, Google Gabriel and uh, and Jean Renoir painting, you'll probably find some stuff. Uh, and yeah, she she also posed for him later, and, uh, and they had a very close relationship. Uh, they, and they lived uh, in Essois in the French countryside, which is, I, I think I pronounced that right. It's E S S O Y E S, and that's uh, maybe right. a, I think it's a little south east of Paris. Uh, so anyway, uh, Jean, um, he. He he saw in in his young years he saw some Charlie Chaplin. I think this was this was after the war, and so that planted the seed. I, I don't know what actually uh, prompted the idea of becoming a filmmaker, but it happened. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he um, he tried to establish his style. He uh, married uh, Andre Huschling, and he decided he wanted to make her a star. And uh, she changed her name to Catherine Hessling, uh, who was uh, pretty often in uh in his early films so yeah and she was uh, if i remember it was, uh, she also posed for uh, his father uh in some films so it was uh, you know almost a don't want to say incestuous relationship but uh you know that does come through in some of his uh, his films so you could almost you mm-hmm. know point to it being that kind of way cuz he you know she was a a model but yeah yeah and, and they they married very young too so i right. she was probably around his father and, uh, uh, you know, in, in the years before his, his passing. So that was probably not a long relationship, I think, because that was 1919. But Right. And, yeah, so he went to films after that. Yeah, and he was able to, uh, I did see that he had a major leg injury. Uh, I believe it was in World War One, so that kind of kept him out of the war. So he was able right. to, to focus on um, other, other interests. So, you know, I wonder what kind of... Um, Renoir we would have uh, you know without that that happening and of course he he did start with uh, ceramics um, initially which uh, I think his father kind of posed to him and I don't want to say pushed him into but um, I thought that was an interesting influence maybe on what we'll talk about later with La Chienne with the you know the the breaking of the porcelain so (laughs) yeah that's right yeah we should mention that he has two siblings uh, Claude Renoir and Pierre Renoir and uh, and they would work together a little bit. Pierre uh, was more frequent collaborator, and yeah, we'll, we'll get into that later. So as uh, as Renoir became uh, or gravitated towards filmmaking, he sort of developed a style. He uh, he became known, and he's still known now for long takes, uh, deep focus. Uh, there's a certain communication between characters that he. Uh, that is very Renoir-esque. Uh, he he used uh, direct sound a lot, and he gave. Uh, he, he was a big actors director. He loved actors. Uh, he loved food too, by the way, <laughs> and and food comes up a, a lot in his films. But let's uh, eat. He, Remind, yeah, so, reminds me of uh, Del Toro. Yes, but he gave uh, actors a lot of space, freedom to move around. Uh, you see that a lot, uh, and so his his films are very fluid. Even his silent films that we're going to talk about here shortly, um, they're they're. They breathe. They're not really stiff. Yeah, they kind of capture humanity. Uh, it's it's not always like like other films. Even during this period, it's not just action conflict, action conflict. So they're they're very dense, uh, very realistic, and uh, so yeah. That, and I think you see this in the the early his early films, and then he kind of perfects this as he goes along, which we'll we'll get into it. Uh, he was just kind of developing it during the silent period here. Uh, so anyway, that's. Uh, that's Jean Renoir's uh, origins and uh, 
planting the seeds. So do you want to get into the films here? Yeah, yeah let's transition into uh, some of his silent film work. We'll want to talk about it a bit. So we'll take a quick musical break and come right back with some silent films. To Criterion Close-Up. We are here talking about early Renoir, and we will start talking about his silent film work. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, he did get started in the silent era, uh, 1920s. And you know, one thing I noticed, there was um, one film that really convinced him that films in France could be well-made, right? So you, you talked to Aaron about how he was really influenced early on by American films. Mm-hmm. He preferred American films, like Chaplin films. So, But there was one film, uh, La Brasier Ardent, which is uh, from 1923, that kind of convinced him that, uh, well, maybe, you know, maybe French films aren't so bad. Um, so, and he had an inheritance uh, mostly from, you know, paintings from his father, um, you know, that money that was able, that allowed him to kind of bankroll some early films. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that, that, that first film was, that was actually co-directed, um, with, uh, another, um, really actor, director, Albert Dudion, mm-hmm. uh, not pronouncing yeah, that Napoleon correct, Napoleon guy. Yes, yes, the actor that played Napoleon. So, and um, of course, in the film, that film starred uh, his wife, uh, who we've we've talked about, um, Hessling. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, she yeah. was in pretty much all of them. So we'll we'll be talking about her uh, a, a little bit more too. But yeah, that kind of uh, led him into you know thinking, well, I can do this too. So, and um, and Aaron, I think you had some more thoughts on that. So he was influenced by American cinema, uh, as you mentioned, Chaplin, Griffith, uh, pl- probably quite a few more. Uh, but I, I think he also was, you know, he was a product of France, and I, I think he was watching the uh, the films of the time. Uh, he uh, he was a little experimental with some of his silent work. I, I think it's in- interesting, yeah. and, and as we talked about in the first episode, there was a lot of experimentation in France in the 20s uh, with silent silent film, which pretty much ended with sound film, and pretty much, not not entirely. But it certainly did with him. Uh, he he became more of a, a linear filmmaker, uh, doing adaptations and then his own uh, realist style. Uh, but for his silent work, uh, you know, he, again, he used common technologies. Uh, he actually invented some of his own. Uh, I think he was kind of an innovator in a way. And he he doesn't get a lot of a lot of due for his silent films. Uh, I That's think there yeah. there are other filmmakers. And you know, if if he hadn't established himself in the sound era, his silent films probably would be forgotten. Yeah. Or, or maybe they'd just be a footnote. You know, Pierre Auguste Renoir had a son who tried filmmaking and it didn't work out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, ha- I have a note from Chris here from uh, from his, his biography, and he talks about the technologies that uh, Renoir brought. And he said uh, uh, parallel editing, which and that is kind of like Griffith with the cross-cutting. Yeah. Uh, in-camera dissolves and superimpositions. Uh, he used animation, elaborate moving tr- camera shots, and of course that would maintain, uh, he, that would continue throughout his sound work. Uh, he used uh, time-lapse photography, slow and fast motion, uh, he used miniatures, matte shots, rear projection, and uh, dream sequences. Yeah. Uh, like Little Match Girl, which we'll get into. There's plenty of that. So, so yeah, he was not, he was 
a pretty talented filmmaker, even if his results were were mixed. Um, and again, that, that was all from Chris Faulkner. Uh, that was pretty much a direct quote that I commented on. Uh, so, and so his, his silent work was from twenty four to twenty nine was the end of it. And you had already touched on it, but you want to just get into Catherine. Uh, I, neither of us have seen Catherine. That's the, his debut film, right? And it was. Uh, Again, it was a project he wanted to make Catherine Hessling a star, his wife. Uh, so in, I, I noticed that in IMDb, this is listed as Backbiters, which is interesting. I, I, I don't know why that could be. Yeah, it's a very strange uh, title. You've got Catherine Backbiters, and uh, I think the the French uh, you know translation is A Life Without Joy, because there's also right. the name Une Vie Sans Joie. So, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, not exactly synonymous with uh, Backbiters. I don't <laughs> That's right. So this <laughs> very, film, very I, it's probably a, available somewhere. Who knows? It might be on YouTube, but uh, we, we didn't get to see it. But from what I understand from my sources, from Chris, is that it was it was technically impressive. Uh, however, as you mentioned, there was the legal, well, there, there was the, uh, he, it was a collaborative effort with uh, Dudon, Dudon, and then there was a legal battle about the control over the film. Uh, I think both of them had uh, wanted to wanted it to be their their baby uh so it actually didn't get released until 1937 which i think is interesting mm. by that time grand illusion had come out and uh and of course all these other renoir films renoir was a star and didon would uh, become a star as well an acting star of napoleon so uh, interesting tidbit uh but would like to see catherine uh, i understand it's again technically impressive uh not you know it's a debut film right yeah, it's kind of. Uh, I mean, we'll we'll get into more of these, but I would love to see you know, Criterion do like a um, you know, some kind of an early silent um, eclipse series or some form thereof. You know, for some of these films, that would be a good one to include as a supplement or something. You know. Yeah, yeah. If, yeah. if they had the rights, I I don't know how that works, but uh, it, um, yeah, it'd be tough. We we've we were going to talk about. I mentioned that there's a a little box set in America that's uh, it. The box is like a, um, what do they call those, uh, uh, tape? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know what they call the, 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 the directors, you know, take one. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, there's a, a name for it. And I've, I've probably said it a gazillion times, but it's escaping me director's now. Director's plate um, or something. Slate yeah. or yeah. something like slate. that. Slate. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. and so, so that has what, six films and it has a f- few of his silence. It has, uh, some of the ones we'll talk about here, uh, Le Ma- Le yeah, I think it's got uh, most of the early ones except for uh, Catherine because, yeah, it's got Whirlpool Fate. Uh, when we'll, we'll talk about Nana, Charleston Parade, Little Match Girl, and um, Le Marcier. So, and then a couple later ones. So, yeah, but, but there are some supplemental ones that we won't get into as much that, you know, would be nice to get like an Eclipse series set of. Right. You know, but. Yeah, there there are a few, and we'll get, especially in the sound, there are some that we don't have that uh, would like to have. But and and there are uh, some that are lost or parts are lost. So we'll get into that. So anyway, anyway, yeah. Whirlpool of Fate. I didn't get to see that. So you, did you see that? Yeah, I did watch that one. That one is uh, it's a shorter film, just a little over an hour. Uh, it's from 1925. This is this is in that Jean Renoir. Uh, collector's edition um, it's his debut film first silent film stars his wife of course at the time Catherine Hessling, right. Hessling. Um, she is a, she's a young girl 
who uh, has a, a tragic uh, kind of early life and is able to turn that around a bit, I guess. Um, there's a there's a title towards the beginning of uh, that says uh, this is kind of interesting. I, I don't know. Um, you know, really how this plays into the film completely, but uh, it says how most of us associate heroism with events in the past or in far off lands, um, and but says that we are blind to the unsung courage uh, that surrounds us every day. So I didn't include all the all of what's included there, but um, so that's kind of the theme of the film. Uh, it's interesting how this film takes place on a, a barge slash houseboat, uh, which reminded me of La Delante. Of course, so yeah. <laughs> precursor to uh, to that, um, you know, that uses a lot of scenic qualities. Uh, there is some impressionistic montages. Uh, some of this is from Republic of Images. Um, but the, you know, the montages and, and optical effects really are subjective for the, uh, the character of Virginia, the main character. Um, you know, within her head. So, you know, it, it did get into some of the pieces that you were talking about, Aaron, some of the filmmaking uh, techniques, um, some very fast, I mean, extremely fast cutting uh, at mm -hmm. one point where she's having a, a tussle, I'll say, with her uh, her uncle. Um, so, and there are some, you know, there's superimposition in, her, in the dream sequence, um, of, you know, the spirit leaving her body. Uh, it's very kind of bright and washed out light, uh, at, at some point, slow motion, there's some playing of the film backwards, uh, cutting in of, uh, of other characters, um, and even some surreal elements in her dream with, uh, you know, a, a lizard, um, people defying gravity coming up from the side of the frame. So, you know, some techniques that you wouldn't see him, you know, again, in this first film, you wouldn't see him use as much outside of uh, these, uh, these silent films. But, uh, you know, and the film, it was a modest success. It just kind of gave him confidence to uh, break into French cinema some more. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, important film there for that. Yeah, and I wish I could have caught it, but I understand it's, it is pretty good and sounds, from your description, sounds like a, a film of quality and has demonstrates yeah. a lot of these uh, innovations. And, uh, and, yeah, and absolutely, yeah. And a product yeah, of its time, too. Especially for a first too. film. Yeah, mm -hmm. or, yeah, I guess technically a second film, but because Catherine was a short, but... Uh, you know, but co one thing but, I do yeah. know that these first couple films did not do well, and so they didn't make any any money or much money. So right. in in order for him to continue his career, and I think you touched on this, he had to sell some of his father's paintings, and uh, he did these to to finance Nana, which is his uh, his next film. Uh, there was one painting I think you mentioned this name, uh, Le Ch Chazure. Did you say that? Hmm. I don't. I don't think so. Okay. I'm I'm putting words in your mouth. <laughs> so that, <laughs> Feel free that's anytime. Pretty important film uh, or painting of his father's. It had uh, Jean dressed as a uh, young hunter, and uh, so he he had to sell that one. Uh, unfortunately, his father had a reputation then, and he was able to get something for it. Uh, but I, I found that he actually later bought that painting back, and uh, mm. now it hangs in the uh, L.A. County uh, Museum of Art. So that's uh, that's an interesting footnote. So it's yeah, it's a, a picture of Jean posing with a gun. So it is really a, a hunter, and I, I believe that's the French word for hunter. So it then came Nana, which was a big production, uh, definitely the biggest of his career up to that point, of course, and and maybe probably his biggest in the silent period. And uh, Nana is a long movie. So you you mentioned that uh, a lot of the films are short. Yeah, it's uh, one of the reasons I didn't get to it. <laughs> right, two and a half hours, and frankly, yeah. I didn't I didn't finish it. It's not. Um, <laughs> 
it's just it's a lot of uh, a lot of time. Some some silent films I can uh, the longer films I can get into. Napoleon, for instance, I, that's uh, arriving soon, and I'm I'm lo- really looking forward to that. But this one was was a little difficult. Uh, but anyway, it's a it was a French German production. Uh, it took, had a long time to long long shooting time. It took months months to shoot. Uh, it cost about a million francs, wow. and yeah, and I was trying to figure out what that would be today. Uh, of course, the francs don't exist anymore; the euro, and uh, there's probably been some inflation. Actually, this was uh, co. Uh, this happened during the uh, German hyperinflation, so um, so I'm sure that was a factor. But anyway, it was a big movie, and um, and it, it kind of reminded me of Fedor. He had his big movie that uh, that kind of did well but hurt him in the long long run uh this right. might have been this isn't a historical epic like that but uh, this is kind of a another very ambitious film um so and nana is a, she's a, a sexually aggressive woman uh and i think that you, it's safe to say that this is a theme of a lot of his films uh aggressive aggressive women maybe even loose women uh, there's some sure. some prostitutes uh hey what does la chienne <laughs> translate <Exactly>. to <laughs> so uh yeah and so, uh, and, and again, Chris Faulkner, I had some some notes from him uh, from his book on this, and uh, and and I, I did have a little trouble with this one. Not that it wasn't well done, but it just was tough to uh, grab, uh, tough to identify with. And I think Chris actually, uh, his criticisms were pretty uh, on point. And mm. he he th- said that the problem really was Catherine Hessling. And, and he's not the only one that's a lot of people uh, criticized this. Yeah. So and, and and she and as you know from his other films, she kind of has a, an innocent face, you know, a, a pleasant face. So she and and he put it as she was too doll like to really pull off this sort of sexuality. And uh, so so yeah, I, and and I, hmm. I I don't usually have a problem with slow silent film, but this one I hate to use the boring word, but <laughs> this one did. <laughs> there it I, is. Yeah, yeah, I I I was. Starting to look at my uh, my watch and my iPad, checking Twitter and yeah, but uh, but it it was a uh, a landmark film for him, uh, but and it, it unfortunately did not do well for for him. Uh, it was another financial well, actually, as, as Chris called it, it was a financial disaster. So that probably made him pull back and work on smaller pictures, which I think is what we'll find here uh, for the next few we're going to talk about. Yeah, probably not a not a bad thing either. Um, you know, a, a couple notes on uh, Nana uh, to Aaron. I didn't see it, but you know, uh, Alan Williams does talk about it in Republic of Images. Just how, um, yeah, just, like you said, kind of a noble failure. Uh, there's a lot of American shots with like actors cut off, you know, at or near the waist, which he, you know, he doesn't normally use. Um, a lot of you know, there's the shot reverse shot cutting, match cuts. And just the, you know, the different acting styles into one film that didn't really seem to work in this film like it does, you know, maybe in some of his uh, his other films. Yeah, um, like and, Grand Illusion. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there's, you know, there's a, kind of those depth, depth composed shots, um, but they, they really, um, you know, work better in uh, in. The, you know his later films rather than uh, than here, so it's you know a bit of a, a fascination. Uh, probably I'd like to go back and watch it uh, at some point, but you know maybe break it up in a couple pieces. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> watch another one. Watch one of his sound right. films, maybe. Well, yeah. and then after Nana, uh, after it did not do well, he had to retreat again and uh, and do some smaller films, and so uh, Charleston came came about. 
which I yeah. understand is a pretty interesting short film uh, named after the dance, and uh, yeah. it was shot in three days. So uh, yeah. <laughs> a very, very short film and surreal, right? Uh, See, so you, you were able to watch this one, weren't you? It, yeah, I did. I, I wasn't sure if I'd get to it, but it just sounds so interesting um, that I just, you know, I had to to go back and watch it. And uh, yeah, it's uh, from 1927. Uh, it was really, it's a social satire. I think it's about 20 minutes long, if that. Um, it was made from the, the leftover film stock from Nana. Um, and it was very right. briefly, very briefly shown uh, at uh, Cinema Vieux Colombier. So, I mean, I, I think maybe three showings there or shown for three days, basically meaning that it didn't really get um, a, much of a release, you know. Uh, the film was was not edited. Uh, it was just kind of put out there, you know, say as is. Um, so it's uh, uh, yeah, what did I say? Nineteen twenty-seven. Mm-hmm. Interesting how the it, it's a bit of a sci-fi uh, film because it's uh, it's kind of erotic. Uh, shows a native white girl that's showing a futuristic uh, African airman the Charleston dance and. Oddly, I wasn't sure what to make of this at first, but it actually features um, a black man in blackface, which I thought really, was huh. really, really odd. Yeah, so yeah, maybe I, that's the Griffith uh, influence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping there's, you know, there's less of that there. I think he's maybe making a bit, bit of a commentary there in, um, you know, in having um, the and, and you know she. He's kind of, or she's kind of seducing him uh, at that point, and it's interesting. You mentioned how, you know, of course, it, it's Catherine Hessling again in that role playing the seductress, and I think it works a little bit better in this film maybe than mm-hmm. it does um, in Nana. And it, again, it might be because she shot more in long shot as mm-hmm. she's kind of doing the Charleston dance. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, but for what it is, I mean, there's someone in a, in a monkey suit in this film too. I mean, it's. <laughs> yeah. It's it's such an oddity. I mean, if if you're studying or thinking about early Renoir, I think it really is worth seeing, um, mm-hmm. just for how kind of strange it is. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I understand it's very surreal and experimental, and it, and it does mm-hmm. sound like this. If if you're gonna probably pigeonhole one Renoir film that's very much French 1920s, it sounds like this is it. Uh, very <laughs> yeah. very experimental in the the flavor of their the those filmmakers like the Russian emigres and. Uh, some of the Dulac, uh, Deluc, um, maybe Librier. Um, we one thing we haven't mentioned is that uh, Jean Renoir was also an actor, and he was he was a good actor. Uh, and yeah. he was I, I didn't see it, but he apparently was uh, acted in Charleston, um, and and he also his debut film Catherine. He was in that as well. I, I don't know if you remember him, but he he was in it. Oh yeah, I didn't even notice him there. I wonder if he maybe he was in the monkey suit. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> but of course, he would uh, act later. Uh, Octave and Rules of the Game. Uh, he right. Played uh, again. Speaking of his love of food, in uh, A Day in the Country, he was the chef. So uh, yeah, 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 good, he, good, good actor. And you know, and I always liked the intros that he did. Uh, a lot of them are on the the Criterion discs. Yeah, so he's a well, well spoken man. He he actually played. I remember it now, Aaron. I had to look it up. He plays an angel um, in uh, Charleston. So okay, okay, uh, yeah. So I, <laughs> angelic. I, I would like to see that. That's also one that uh, the Slate film uh, uh, film box set i guess you could call it slate box yeah. set uh so uh, that and it's pro- probably on youtube uh his next film is marquita which apparently is excellent and uh and 
according to uh, Faulkner, one of the best of his silent period. Uh, but unfortunately, it is lost, which is sad. Uh, that's probably the, if, of all his films. That's uh, that sounds like where everything came together and uh, and worked. But we can't see it. So uh, hopefully, somebody will discover it someday, and uh, and we'll we'll get to uh, catch up with that. But um, so so then, Little Match Girl. Uh, this is an interesting film. Uh, I don't know about you, but I am, are you familiar with the story? I don't think so. Well, Some of it, the background. It is uh, Hans Christian Andersen. It's a, a, a folk tale or a, mm. a fa- fairy tale. I, I guess you could. Fairy tale doesn't really seem <laughs> to be appropriate. I guess there's some some dream, dream sequences, but there's not. It's not a lot of fantasy. It's a lot of reality uh, through the lens of fantasy, maybe. But um, so yeah, it was a sure. fairy tale. And so I, and Hans Christian Andersen is interesting in that he is, he's a, a writer of children's stories, but I, I'd say there's a literary quality uh, to him. Um, and so th- this is one I, I read as a kid and it destroyed me. Uh, hmm. It's, uh, and I, I would recommend reading it. It's very short. Uh, and, but, I, and it was one of his most famous books, of course, a lot of or stories, a lot of his became other Disney movies. Uh, but this one is, uh, as you can imagine from the movie, pretty dark. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I don't remember this ever getting adapted to a Disney movie. <laughs> no, no. It, <laughs> no, wrong, it actually had, there have been other adaptations. I think there, was, there mm-hmm. have been some plays and, and that sort of thing. But um, but yeah, this is not exactly Disney. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, this was very well received. Uh, however, there was a uh, plagiarism accusation. And, um, and I, I think that it would not have succeeded, uh, but because it just in reaction to it, uh, Renoir had to make some cuts. So he cut about 20 minutes from the, the beginning of the film, or actually from the total film. So he cut the entire first act and then part of the ending. And so th- and that those cuts are lost. We don't have deleted scenes. Hmm. So I, I, and I think I, I, I did notice that when I, when I watched this, that it did seem to be missing some of the exposition at the beginning. Um, However, a lot of the the middle portion, the hallucinations and, and dream sequences, uh, I think prob- probably a lot of those were intact. Um, but yeah, uh, it seems so. Quite a dark film. Uh, I I don't know if you care about spoiling a hundred fifty year old film, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I thought that he captured the story pretty well, though. Uh, and he used a lot of those uh, the dream se- sequences and a lot of the techniques that we talked about uh, to um, to kind of showcase this girl's fantasy of uh living really of surviving right. so um yeah he used to i mean you, you'd mentioned it and this is the first time i really noticed it uh miniatures early on you know yeah. like the the shack and the train going by i mean very especially to us you know very obvious uh, miniatures and there is a, early on a, a scene where she's looking in a store window of course it reminded me a bit of uh um, a Christmas story uh, very early on where they're looking in there. And th- this actually takes place on New Year's Eve, so it's uh, post-Christmas. So, you know, timing of watching this was uh, certainly uh, appropriate. But, yeah, and she, you know, she starts to uh, really hallucinate uh, throughout the, um, mm-hmm. towards the, the end of the film. And I, I thought those were, you know, some really interesting images. I mean, they, it seems like it may have been kind of a, a larger, it, it feels like it, had a larger budget, but from what I understand, it didn't. No, um, no. So, you know. Pretty economical, was, yeah. And I, I'd say that from what I've seen, of course, I haven't seen Marquita, which is lost. Uh, and uh, and by the way, I noticed that 11 people have rated it on IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> I think those those are 11 liars. Uh, so, 
But yeah. for me, this is probably the, the highlight of his silent work. Uh, I, are you in agreement with that, or what do you think of, of Little Match Girl? Yeah, I I would say it it is. I mean, especially for um, you know for what it is, it's it seems to be the most kind of contained film. Uh, certainly a affecting film, uh, tough like you said. I mean, there's a you know just a tough tough scenes towards the end. And I think it is uh, it does along with it, it was interesting to see both this and um, Charleston Parade from kind of a more surreal side, maybe how um, this didn't really seem representative of his later work again. And this Mm -hmm. is talked about a little bit in Republic of Images, but it does have an atmosphere of, um, you know, strangeness, of course, kind of more of an unreality. I really kind of glommed onto that word of unreality Mm because I think he does, um, that does, influence some of his his later work um you know even like you know like later but early like Boudou and la chienne where it's not quite uh you know it's kind of realistic but not quite a a reality and even um they they talk about this being using the word um Federique, i believe it is which really translates to magic um the uh, french word for magic and so you know i think of you know maybe these films maybe not quite surrealism but maybe maybe more magic realism yeah no i think um, that's that's fair films, to say so. yeah uh, we should also also mention that this is an adaptation and uh and this would be and i, and I think Having seen this, I think his his direction and his choices that with the dream sequences, I think they serve serve the story well, and I think he yeah. became quite good at that. And we'll get into that with his sound films, but because uh, pretty much everything is an adaptation, uh, except for maybe his last couple of silent films. So, um, and and his early work, uh, and and the sad sack which we didn't see is his next film, and that's based on a play, and uh, that apparently it has Michelle Simon and uh, apparently it's enjoyable and funny um, which you would not say the little match girl is uh, so uh, yeah I, I think he he developed an arsenal and really again to uh, to serve the the story and the adaptation and I again I, I think it really worked well um, I might be a little mm-hmm. partial towards that one because I've read the book and I I, yeah, oh. I read it when I was or the story when I was a child and it's kind of dear to me um, so uh, anyway, yeah, read the story. And yeah, we haven't yeah. seen the sad sack. Uh, did you read much about that? No, no. I mean, I, I really just, I mean, these films aren't uh, available. Most of what I, I heard or read, I mean, I just read a little bit kind of about this period, just how, you know, at the point after Nana, you know, he didn't have um, much of a, um, you know, a budget. So his work is really more representative of uh, what mainstream producers wanted him to do. So a little bit, you know, not as much interest, but, you know, mm-hmm. like you, you mentioned, um, The Sad Sack is the uh, an early film starring uh, Michelle Simone mm-hmm. um, and, you know, kind of more improvised, uh, I think, which, you know, would transition well to uh, to sound. Um, so and some, some interesting... Um, other other uses of uh, you know he started to use uh, panning, um, off-screen space, and um, kind of more depth of composition. And there's even some shots. I, I saw this in some of the um, some of his earlier films where you kind of see him refocusing uh, within the shot because the film stock isn't fast enough. You know to kind Not of keep right. up with it. You know so. Um, but yeah, I I wasn't able to see any of the others because again, you know, we need that uh, early Renoir um, <laughs> series. You know, yeah, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna bang the drum for that. Uh, yeah, 
but uh, well, I, I will say that Chris and and I think Chris has been able to see m- most of these in some capacity. And when, when we met, uh, you know, he t- did talk about how disappointing it is that uh, not all of these are re- readily available. But uh, in the book, in his uh, Tashin book, he says, quote, that this is the most aesthetically accomplished of his uh, silent films. So um, it seems like the sad sack did uh, come together the way he um, the way he he envisioned. So um wish we could see that. Maybe it'll be if it's it might be available on French DVD or something. If, but if not, I, I hope it will be someday. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah. Any anything else on the kind of a silent f- films, Aaron? I just wanted to mention that set one more time, but. Yeah, that set is and usually you can get that pretty cheap on uh, Amazon. I, I don't know the print run if if it's, in, but um, yeah, I imagine I it's, it's not um, indefinite. Yeah, I picked it up a, about a year ago, and I think it is actually out of print because it says it's out of stock at Amazon. But there, you can still get it for twenty to thirty dollars from sellers on Amazon and probably okay. eBay. So I think it's worth picking up. I mean, I mm-hmm. I did want to mention too some of the there are some I noticed especially in the Little Match Girl. There are a lot of uh, lines in the print and audio cracks and pops. So, you know, the restoration is kind of hit or miss. It doesn't have that criterion treatment, but mm-hmm. I think it's still worth picking up just yeah. to see these films. I right? agree. I mean, the, the, the transfers are not great, but, what you know, these these have not, uh, even with Renoir's uh, name recognition, they're not, uh, not going to go through the 4K scans and uh, cr- uh, erasing the pixels here and there. Uh, so yeah, the transfers are a little rough sometimes. Um, but anyway, to, to wrap this up, there were uh, a couple other silent films that uh, he um, ended his silent career with, uh, and they were both commissioned. Uh, again, he hmm. was he he did a, a good job, but he wasn't uh, in in as much demand as you you might think, uh, given the Renoir that we know. Um, so he uh, was commissioned for uh, Société des Films Historiques. <laughs> Hmm. Which translate translate it's pretty easy translation is Society of Historical Films. So these were commercial. They were um, and they were not often seen and apparently not hmm. too interesting. Uh, uh, the, the the actually the, well the former is not too interesting. Um, and that is the tournament is not uh, n- not very good. Uh, apparently overlong. Um, hmm. It's also been lost or it had been lost. Uh, I think it was found in the seventies. But the, uh, the the latter film is uh, is more interest, interesting. Uh, Le Bled. So again, not available as far as I know, but um, but w- worth uh, checking out. Apparently, uh, Le Bled was, um, and I'm probably ba- butchering that. Uh, but that was also his uh, first uh, collaboration with uh, Jacques Becker, uh, Becker, <laughs> who of course we would know as a director and um and he was that was a partnership that would uh, that would flourish in the sound years uh, actually especially in a day in the country which we'll get to so uh anyway the um uh, actually andre bazin uh, trashed these films for um not uh, having much de- depth of field uh, which uh, of course renoir became known for although right. from what i saw i di- i didn't see the depth of field that uh, that I, I noticed in his sound work, so I don't know if that was a fair accusa- accusation. Not that I'm going to second guess uh, Andres Bazin or uh, <laughs> place myself fine. above him. Uh, he knew what he was right, talking right. about. Uh, so, anyway, uh, so that that closed out his silent career, and uh, like many, he had to get into sound, um, and probably a good time for a transition into how he got into uh, from sound to, to 
from Silent to Sound. So um, shall we take a little break and uh, get into that? Sounds like a good idea. We'll take a break and get into the early sound cinema. Sounds like a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's do it. Welcome back to Criterion Close-Up. I'm Mark Herney here with Aaron West. We are delving into the early sound period for Mr. Jean Renoir. So let's talk about some sound films, Aaron. Um, we do want to transition a little bit into it before we talk about the movies. Um, he was sort of successful in the silent period, but really turned into a more successful talkie director. Um, you, know, you don't he, say. <laughs> I, I do say. <laughs> You know, he was he was skilled at directing actors, duh, right? Yes, very much so. <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing is, often people who, directors who were successful at uh, directing actors for talkies, they had theater experience. But, you know, Mr. Renoir, he was not, he didn't have theater experience, um, but he was still skilled in directing actors. So kudos to you, sir. Um, so, yeah, a good, uh, good transition for him. Um, know going into the sound period what do you think of uh mr renoir in this period well i think a lot of him of course as uh, we talked he's uh, maybe my favorite director maybe yeah. um one of them and it's really because of this decade uh so uh, real quick i we had mentioned um the transition from silent to sound film and of course that was uh tumultuous for a lot of uh, a lot of the cinema yeah uh, a lot of, of people were kind of kicking and screaming, uh, getting into it. Um, actually, uh, uh, Rene Claire is a, a big one. He didn't want to, but turned out to be pretty good at it. And so uh, Renoir kind of rolled with the punches, but he uh, he did a good job, of course. But because he was, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But he did find his footing uh, very quickly. Uh, he established himself as a, a, a talented sound film director, very, very good at it. Uh, of course, he started by uh, doing adaptations, which we touched on in the silent era. Uh, pretty much all of his early films are, are adapted from something. And uh, But he was extremely prolific in the 30s. And, uh, and w- one thing we haven't really touched on is the social and political aspect. And of course, this is the this is during the Depression, this is before World War. It's actually the, after the First World War and before the Second One. Uh, you know, the, the, there was communism was a, a factor. Uh, there actually a major factor in France, um, and their class issues were very much at the forefront. And so, he was not the most social d- director. There were others that uh, were maybe more a little a little more political. And in fact, I, I remember doing some research in in class and. I found a, a quote from Renoir that said that uh, he didn't consider himself political, but if if kind of a gun to his head, he would say he was closer to communism than anything else. Right. So I've he was definitely too. definitely leftist. I, I think that might have been in, in Republic of Cinema. Um, so and this does come out in his films, um, and he would kind of get a little more socially conscious and political as uh, time went on, uh, as he more found his footing. Uh, I think it's also worth pointing out that uh, this period, the early 30s, there was a, a leftist movement, and uh, it, the National Front came to power in 1936, and there was a, uh, a president by the name of uh, Leon Blum, 
who actually was a communist. And so uh, we'll get into that that era of politics in uh, in other episodes. But I think it's important to to note that uh, a lot of his uh, his themes had social and class undertones, and uh, and then especially his mid thirties output was very political mm. and probably more films like Monsieur Lang and a, a documentary that we'll, we won't get into in this episode. So anyway, back to, <laughs> back to his, uh, his early, early French films. Um, well, he, since he was not a, uh, a major success in silent film, he had to establish himself. And that leads us to his first film, which, which is really an experiment, uh, on Porja Bebe. And so he had, taken a lot of risks with his uh, silent films, as we noted, uh, a lot of uh, innovations and uh, a lot of experimentation. And so he had to prove to producers and distributors that he could make an accessible sound film. And En Prouge Bebe was that test. Uh, It was shot in three weeks. Um, It was humorous. Uh, There's some toilet humor. Baby's laxative is how that translates. Uh, (laughs) Right. (laughs) uh, There were Again, we've we've touched on direct sound that um, he liked to use direct sound, and that was not um, not very common with filmmakers of, of that time. Uh, and also, this had Michel Simon, and um, yeah. of course, he'll he'll be a fixture of this early discussion. So, uh, so on Purge Bebe, uh, very much in a play adaptation. Uh, I think you can tell. Yeah. So you you got very to check stagey. this out. Very yeah. 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 I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it's like film theater, really, um, you know, based on the, the comic one act play by Georges Feydeau, um, about a, about a hour long and um, made the same year as uh, La Chienne really gave uh, Renoir the, the ability to, it's kind of a, like you said, experiment. Uh, there were a couple of producers that wanted him to, you know, really, um, Kind of show his chops and uh, show that he could make a make the transition and be uh, productive and not go over budget as he had done in, in some past mm-hmm. films. So there's Braunberger and uh, Richard Bay. Um, kind of this is his his proving ground, and it seems like he um, really was able to um, kind of test his own chops and sound and see if he really could make that transition um, into, into sound. There's some pieces that he really enjoyed, uh, within this film. I mean, the, the use of sound, um, in the bathroom and, you know, the mm-hmm. breaking of the, you know, the porcelain really showed him that, uh, he could do this, um, you know, kind of prove it to himself and prove it to others. So, you know, and you can see kind of comes out in this, this film and, uh, into La Chienne, how, um, kind of truth of character, I, I think is one thing. Those, uh, the use of tone, rhythm, um, emotional undertones that start to come out in in uh, in these two films. So it's it's kind of a it's a bit of a pip, <laughs> I think <laughs> that this film um, especially. And uh, you know, I actually literally laughed out loud uh, when we get the pouring of the mineral oil for the father. Um, just the relationship between um, the family and, of course, bringing in this. Uh, man that he's trying to uh, to sell to in the Michel Simon character, um, just a different um, different kind of character for him. I mean, he it kind mm-hmm. of transitions a bit into the character that he plays in La Chienne, but um, it's a, a interesting kind of dynamic that you know the character in La Chienne changes into um, you know the character that we see in uh, in Boudou. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. You you could see these as uh, as sequels, a trilogy, the C- Simone trilogy certainly. maybe. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. 
I think it's a it's a fun film, and I think it, it yeah. of course it did succeed in what he what he was attempting it was just to show that he could be efficient and he could put off a mainstream or I guess mainstream a a normal film um, in the sound era that uh, and and really give him a, a shot at making further films. Right. And and actually, Chris notes that uh, that you know, this is a minor film; it's a novelty. Yeah, and it it, it is fun. I, I I enjoyed it, but it's not grand illusion um and and michelle <laughs> right. simone it's it's always fun to see him playing a different character he, and I, i'd say he's actually pretty versatile um although yeah. he, he is good at, at the the he's excellent as the uh, the vagrant <laughs> um yeah. but, but chris points out and i and i agree that uh if if not for renoir's later successes this film probably would be forgotten or maybe lost in fact we're kind of lucky that it's not lost um, and that it was included in a restored version in the uh, La Chienne DVD. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, almost like uh, it just reminded me of. It's almost like we talked about, you know, Blood Simple and the, you know, the trailer that they made um, to, you know, kind of sell uh, Blood Simple for the Coen Brothers. You know, it's almost like that. It's almost like right. you know, making a movie to kind of sell the fact that you can make sound movies. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, Although uh, French, uh, the fr- French film industry was uh, was different than uh, Hollywood. Uh, uh, <laughs> right. And in fact, in fact, we talked about in the first episode the French industry was struggling, so they they wanted some sort of uh, they wanted some sort of evidence that uh, a director would be successful and could be reined in. So it's not right. not too di- dissimilar from Hollywood. But I, I think it, w- it was definitely a stepping stone on La Chienne, and there was a really good supplement. Again, Chris Faulkner, <laughs> he's yep. all over the place, there he but. Is. Uh, uh, and I didn't. I, I watched it when the disc came out, but I didn't. I didn't rewatch it for this episode. But you just watched it, correct? Yes. Yeah. A really nice uh, um, insight into the you know the, the kind of the you know this whole transition between um, you know the uh, the making of on uh, Purge Bebe and uh, you know doing doing La Chienne. I mean, he he does talk about how um, he gets into this transition. He talks about the first sound film. Um, under the roofs of Paris uh, from Rene Claire, which is also you know available right. on, on Criterion DVD. Um, he he talked about the you know part I talked about the 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 pot breaking and the offstage kind of flushing of the toilet kind of really re- made Renoir realize how um, sound can deepen the quality of of, uh, of the film. So you know mm-hmm. again it's a, it's an experiment. You know can I can I actually do this? And, uh, you know, he talked about how the, the story of um, the, you know, the, the story of La Chienne really is a, a bit of a, a love triangle story, you know, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, well, well, might as well get into La Chienne. Uh, yeah. Another adaptation from a, a novel at the time by uh, Fouchardier, Fouchardier, that, that's probably terrible. It's pretty good, yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> is it I'm okay? with it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Again, this is this one is set in uh, Montmartre, uh, Montmartre, and uh, and you really do get a sense of place in La Chienne, and I think mm. that is actually backing up a little bit. One thing I think it's really notable from Purge Bebe and La Chienne, and would continue, is that you can't really pigeonhole Jean Renoir into a genre. Genre. Um, yeah, he made all types of films, so La Chienne is. Definitely has a different different tone than uh, than on Purge Bebe, yes. and, then, and yeah, of course much darker. Baudou, Day in the Country, uh, Tony, even uh, they're of course the summer light, summer heavy, but uh, they're all different genres. So he, um, hmm. I think he did a good job mixing things up. Um, anyway, uh, 
so La Chienne is, it was remade as Scarlet Street by Fritz Lang, but I could actually see a lot of Fritz Lang or uh, or German expressionism mm. influence in this film. It's yeah, almost certainly. a noir el- has element. I, I felt the same way, especially with the black and white, obviously. But then you know the the lighting, you know, it just ha- has mm-hmm. that you know the, the the use use of shadow and kind of film noir lighting. Yeah, for sure. And, and the I, tone I, of it too, you know, just being yeah. a darker tone. And I, I think it's exceptional. I think uh, Simone is great. And, yeah. and one thing I uh, Renoir tends to uh, cast. Well, not tends to, but sometimes cast uh, or, or portrays his actors as passive, and uh, and I, I, w- I don't want to use the word victim, but people that have action put upon them, and and they don't um, they don't really they're not very strong characters, and I'd say that's the case with uh, well, for most of the movie <laughs> with uh, with Simone's character, and then yeah. strong females, uh, and this and and sometimes licentious, and uh, and that's the case here. Uh, uh, Females taking advantage of the male. Um, right. So yeah, I, th- I think it's a fascinating film. Um, and again, we talked about direct sound. He used it here uh, quite a bit, and at times it didn't work. Sometimes, and, and uh, this is pointed out on the DVD. Sometimes the the direct sound uh, gets in the way, and the, and the dialogue it's in the background. Mm-hmm. The dialogue's not uh, crisp. So, um, of course, we're watching with subtitles, so it, that does, oh, doesn't always matter for us. Um, yeah, yeah, I didn't notice it as much just because of that, but yeah, I could see that. So, were you a fan of uh, La Chienne? Yeah, I liked this one a lot. You know, I, I I liked how you you really do see the transition for him and kind of becoming into his own as a filmmaker. I mean, at the beginning, you have the you know the puppet show that right, uh, right. You know, <laughs> it, and really bookends the film. And I, I think uh, you know we talked about his uh, his cousin how. Um, you know, she had brought him to puppet shows and here it is mm-hmm. in his film. Gabrielle. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, you talked about the, the use of lighting. I, I did notice how this is, seems like another film, uh, or another character similar to, um, Purge Bebe, another dissatisfied wife, um, in this film. And I, I thought about the, you know, the title, uh, La Chienne, you could, um, you know, really, that, that could be the, um, the, um, his wife too, uh, mm-hmm. as well as his, yeah. you know, I guess you'd call it his mis- his mistress. So yeah, he, he really is, uh, you, you almost feel for the guy. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, no, he's, you do. He's a schlub. He's yeah. Um, he's a schlub. That's the best, uh, the best <laughs> word for it. But there are some moments of levity too. Um, you know, when, yeah. um, I, I don't want to say really what happens cause I think it's a, a funny moment, but, uh, you know, the, my goose is cooked moment. Um, uh, you know, it's a yeah. darker, darker film, but there are some moments of, uh, of levity in this too, I think. And I, I think, again, that's, that's, uh, uh, typical of Renoir. Uh, a lot of times, even in the serious films or, or even the comical films, uh, he'll cut away to, uh, to an object. Um, and it, it, it kind of gives you, it's like a moment of re- reflection and, uh, and it, yeah, it's 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 a style he would use it in Grand Illusion, uh, lots of others. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's he definitely had his own flavor of filmmaking, and I think he definitely establishes it here. And in fact, I'd say this. Well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder how much of this is experimental too. There was a one shot that I um, there's one where he's there's a note the there's no dialogue where Legrand is shaving, and then it kind of pans and ends on. Um, a girl playing the piano in the adjoining apartment kind of reminded me how um, you know later in the film as the the action starts to kind of ramp up you know what the action there is um, mm-hmm. there's the the scene of um, 
you know, the group playing outside and uh, kind of the, the people listening and, but the action that's really happening is uh, within the building there. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, kind of puts, he puts the, the characters in a certain kind of space, you know, things really generally happen within this, um, this apartment building, so to speak. So, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Well, shall we go to uh, Bodu? Uh, yeah. The, finish the uh, Simon trilogy. Yeah. So. Yeah, certainly. Uh, well, well, one thing I wanted to mention uh, along with uh, Boudou and uh, La Chienne, you know, it really was a, another failure, um, financial failure, as I understand. So it um, difficult um, for him to, um, you know, I, I wonder how he kind of kept working <laughs> because these films <laughs> didn't didn't seem to make money and they're kind of more uh, interesting in, uh, in retrospect. So. Well, he he did have that name. I think it probably had a little something to do with it, uh, and uh, kind of self financed some some of these. So, and yeah. he had a lot of friends too, and which we we kind of gotten, which we've covered a little bit. Uh, anyway, right. uh, Baudu, I I think uh, it from the Renoir introduction uh, pretty much sums it up. Uh, he yeah, says he's that. <laughs> Quote, uh, Boudou is Marcel Simon, uh, and he said he's one of the greatest actors in the history of stage and screen. Uh, doesn't hold back, and, and I agree with him. I think uh, Simon is really a tour de force. I think he's really something. Uh, and, uh, and one thing that in the introduction that I thought was uh, clever is that uh, Renoir said they filmed uh, uh, Simone on on location in Paris with a long lens, which, of course, he used long lens a lot. Mm. And... Uh, and as a tramp, and the Parisians didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. He just completely blended in, hmm. um, and they didn't recognize him. I think he was probably known a little bit by that point. Uh, actually, probably a lot, even though uh, from his his earlier work, even though Latalant had not um, come out. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, Simone is fantastic. Uh, I think he's theatrical, uh, comedic, uh, and uh, again, this was an adaptation of a, a play, wasn't it? It was, yeah, a play by uh, René Fauchois, I believe it is, or a stage comedy, I guess, but yeah, it's a play. But yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's more improvisational, and you can kind of tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, Simone is just so fun to watch. Uh, the, his facial expressions, uh, like when, again, talk about Renoir and food, uh, when when Simone eats, he uh, he talks with his mouth full, he... Uh, he 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 chews scenery actually, but uh, but right. he's just so enjoyable to literally, watch. You can yeah. you can tell he yeah, literally, you can tell he is having a great time, um, and really, you can tell he's comfortable with the role. Um, yeah, he he's just tremendous. And, and I, I did get to rewatch this one, uh, and like you, this is one of the first films I saw. Aside from the performance, it doesn't hold up as well mm. as I remember. Is it? that your experience as well? Yeah. And I, I'm actually about two thirds into rewatching it. And uh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I think it really, I mean, Renoir in the introduction talks about how he, he rewatches this in quite a bit, which is interesting to know that he's actually rewatching some of his own film. I know a lot of people yeah. don't do that, but you know, he watches it to see Simone. He almost, uh, he mm-hmm. said he forgets that he, he made the film. So, you know, I can see that it really is uh that performance, um, I, I mean, it's kind of, um, 
I don't know. In looking at it, it does seem to make some um, comments on society and you know class and you know social structures. Structures, of course. I, I don't know if it's maybe very much yeah. a little bit heavy heavy handed in that way um, mm-hmm. that it does that. I mean, it um, you know I, I I did like some of the the early pieces. I, I think once he is there with the family. Uh, I don't know how much of a, a commentary there is, but I, I did like how um, the man is uh, talking about, I can't remember the, his name, but he's talking about his kind of his God-given and carnal right to the pleasures of the flesh. Right, uh, He right. doesn't desire his wife. I, You know, it's that comes into play a little bit later, too, I think, where, um, you know, Voodoo kind of gets in, in the way of uh, that relationship. Um, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think I think the film overall is... is uh, generally him i mean it does kind of lay it on a little bit thick early on too when their um voodoo loses his dog and the policemen don't really uh, assist right. him but right. then you know they assist the the attractive lady who's well dressed and you know a man kind of drives up and you know takes her in his car to to go find the dog so it's it's not it's not her, subtle but her dog was worth uh, I, I she she said right. the value of the dog i, I, <laughs> yeah, I can't like remember the amount but i think it 10, was like 10,000 francs, francs. Or, yeah, yeah so yeah. So yeah, okay, Makes all that, the difference. That, that does. Whereas this uh, this um, vagrant uh, is uh, he's not worth uh, reconsidering or right. a, a second look. No, I I think you're you're right on point, and we do have to remember that this was shot during the depression, mm-hmm. and and there were a lot of tramps around. Um, so th- this film really was commenting on a, on a very modern social problem. Uh, yeah. And so and I, I think again, Simone uh, was terrific, but. But yeah, it was extremely anti-bourgeois, uh, and and I think you're, it's fair to say that it's very heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that uh, Lestingois was the character, the the upper class character him, that yeah. uh, that takes Boudou in. Um, actually, Chris uh, said that, uh, and I could see this as well, is that that character kind of represented French society and and their relations with uh, the, with the lower classes. Um, and I think the way Simone plays the character too, uh, he's sort of He's home, homeless and he's a vagrant, but he's okay. Uh, yeah. Even though you know it, it, it begins with suicide, but he's okay with that or attempted suicide. Yeah, he's um, he's the liberated character, and I, I know Alan right. Williams mentions this too. He's the more liberated one, whereas the the middle class household is the more repressed. Uh, exactly. One, you know, which you right. think he's, would he's kind of turns that. Yep. And there's one scene. It's a comic scene that I, I think really kind of punctuates that is when uh, the do- uh, the lady and their daughter give him five francs, and he he said, "Well, what's this for? I Why are you giving that. me five? Yeah, yeah and he's, he <laughs> says for food. And then the the guy in the expensive car, he gives him five francs uh, for food, and like, what are you talking about? Uh, right. So and yeah, he just no, walks off. You know, just yeah. walks <laughs> off. Yeah. Uh, Simone is terrific. Uh, I can't say no. I, I think I've already said too much about him, but uh, he, he really makes this movie fun to watch. And even if it's, I, I agree, it's not the best film. It, it, I definitely rewatch. It's went down a couple pegs, but um, yeah. but it's still va- a, a worthy uh, inclusion in yeah. his uh, his canon. Still, still fun to watch, and you can again see the um, you know the grow. Um, the, his growth really right so you see oh, uh, yeah. the the lengthy shots um you know some some added depth i think uh, mm-hmm. more uh more openness you know republic of images talks about this more spontaneity um you know we talked about this being um you know really more of a spontaneous film and more on uh, on movement and you know the placement of of people so yeah could yeah. see renoir's growth for sure yeah, for sure. And actually, after that, he went on to, uh, he made Chatard and Company, uh, which mm-hmm. 
I don't think that one's very available. No, I couldn't find it. <laughs> Madame Bo- Bovary either. I think that's on an out-of-print uh, DVD from uh, 1934. Yeah, and of course these are all uh, adaptations. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the Chatard was adapted from a play by Roger Ferdinand. And I understand it was an average film, uh, not mm. really noteworthy, so that's probably why it's not available. Um, I've actually seen Madame Bovary, um, and that's, a, again, Flaubert is a novel, and that's a very, very popular novel. And that's also about a lady who is uh, likes to sleep around. Um, <laughs> so that, uh, that that's definitely a, a common thread yeah. with his early films. Um one thing that's interesting that I, I found out from Faulkner is that uh, it was there was supposed to be a three-hour version of the film, and that mm. version was lost. Um, but uh, Chris talks about how uh, Bertolt Brecht uh, f- saw that version and really loved it. Um, but we we don't get to see it, and I, actually I, th- I think it's kind of funny that Brecht would uh, enjoy a, a film like that. But uh, and I'm not going to get into Brechtian. Um, or Brecht's uh, style or aesthetic, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, that Chris says that uh, this that Bovary is quote the frustration of female desire in and by an oppressive and patriarchal society. So, kind of like Baudu, this uh, Madame Bovary, which of course was a novel, but Renoir is using it for a social um, to put together a social message using again a strong female character, uh, and again, again the males are often uh passive and low energy uh, sorry i just <laughs> i just used a trumpism but uh, <laughs> that's okay not uh, yeah not uh not the most uh, uh engaging or attractive characters but uh, uh right. i remember seeing madame bovary it's again not part of his his major works uh but decent yeah, and we, we skipped over, I just realized chronologically, uh, Night of the Crossroads from 1932, um, the one before that. I could almost see, again, like another set coming out of these. Was, Night at the Crossroads is available on DVD, but I, I from what I heard, it's not a very good print. Um, that one is uh, it's an adaptation, actually, of his, uh, his friend, uh, George uh, Simonson's uh, It's a Murder Mystery, um, and considered, again, per uh, Alan Williams, um, more of a kind of a closer homage to Boonwell. We talked about some of the surrealism in some of his early uh, sound films. This one has a little bit of surrealism where, uh, you know, a woman plays with a large tortoise. Um, so, and this film was actually a little bit more, or I should say the writer, um, Simonson, was a little more admired by the political right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and this film was, you know, with its kind of surreal, uh, kind of subtle, uh, subtly anarchist uh, bent to it. Um, interesting how that uh, kind of played, you know, taking something <laughs> written more f- uh, from a right perspective uh, and a film by someone who's hmm. uh, more on the left with, uh, yeah, Night, Night at the Crossroads. Yeah, and I, I actually did talk to Chris about this, and mm-hmm. Night, at, Night at the Crossroads is uh, supposed to be exceptional, so it really is dis- disappointing that it's not available here. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I'll have to look into whether I can get a hold of it from France, uh, but I, I have not seen it. Um, but Chris said that it's uh, it's actually a forerunner of film noir, and uh, yeah, in, yeah. in his words, it has no equal, uh, so without being overly stylized. So, um, and and. Again, and I, I think we're pretty much through the sound at this early sound period. But um, one thing uh, that Chris pointed out is that even though these were all adaptations of novels, plays, uh, that Renoir 
was able to uh, establish his style and really bring something to these adaptations, uh, something special is the way he put it. Uh, mm. And he, it's grounded in a stylistic realism, you know, with the sound camera work. Uh, but he does kind of capture everyday life. And uh, again, this is me uh, paraphrasing Chris here. So, yeah. um, uh, and I, I think that's definitely the case. Baudou, uh, definitely uh, everyday life in the 1930s and kind of captures uh, the free spirit. Uh, La Chienne, uh, maybe a little misogynistic. Uh, actually, you could say a lot of his early films are misogynistic. Sure, but, yeah, I could see that. But certainly kept, captures romance, humanity, uh, and some of the some of the dark side of romance. So there there is some realism there. And, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, speaking to that, to Aaron, you know, um, from Republic of Images, this is uh, I I really responded a lot to La Chienne. I know we're going to talk about her favorites later, but I think one of the reasons is um, you know he he mentions how. In Renoir films, I mean, he's seen as a gentle humanist, that's his word, um, mm-hmm. but people really are, in his films, out to kill each other. So, they're, you know, you've oh, got yeah. the, the aggression and conflict, uh, really, that are part of our human relations, especially between people of different classes. Um, and then life just kind of goes on around it, he says, which is, you know, that's the scene, I think, life going on around the mm-hmm. violence late in La Chienne. Um, and then, but life is also in harmony with, with what's going on with, you know, in harmony with, uh, that violence. So again, I, I think that was kind of the key to why I, I responded pretty strongly to, uh, to La Chienne. you know, just, uh, interesting. And on that note, I think that's, uh, again, why those cutaway sequences have so much strength because they mm-hmm. do show that, uh, among this drama, this conflict, these character dilemmas, there's somebody playing piano I, I i can't think right. of specific uh, scenes but uh or, yeah. or just something is going on life is li- life is still moving uh yeah yeah so, you actually uh, see you know you see him uh Le Grand, uh you know painting at, at one point you know you see right. him doing his what his his passion is so yeah it's, and I, I i think that's some of the poetry aspect and and yeah. in the next segment i think we're going to distill the, the poetic realism so maybe i should shut up <laughs> <laughs> yeah well let's uh it's a good good transition uh let's uh get into it we'll take another quick break and uh, a little bit um couple talk about a couple other films in the poetic realism realm uh, kind of more again his sound films in the, the mid 50s i'm sorry in the mid 30s <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Criterion Close-Up. We're still talking about early Renoir. We want to talk about a couple more films and um, poetic realism, Aaron. Yes, this is really where the, he develops his, uh, his his style of poetic realism, and especially the realism, which we'll get into here shortly. Yeah. But I think uh, after his early sound films, his, uh, his adaptation sequences, although not that he was finished at adapting uh, other works, he would always... Uh, always do that to, to some degree mm. but uh the 30 1935 and 1936 were uh, especially prolific uh, periods for for renoir uh and, and 34 uh, tony is kind of 34 35 right uh, there's also the crime of monsieur lang which uh, i i think we're going to save for the next episode of renoir 
La Vie en Anu, that's probably bad, is a, do- a collaborative documentary which is highly political, which again, and it's not available to me at least, uh, so that's one I, I want to see, but hopefully we can talk about that next time. Uh, there's also The Lower Depths, which uh, is, uh, was that Gorky? Yes, Maxim um, Gorky. Which again, we're not going to talk about this time, but uh, is another big film he made. And then A Day in the Country, which is a uh, inadvertent short film, which we'll get into the reasons why. But mm-hmm. uh, those are the big films. And then that would lead up to uh, what would people might refer to his first mas- masterpiece is uh, Grand Illusion, which uh, is pretty much deserves a show in itself. Uh, but actually, I, I'd say maybe not. Some people might argue there are a couple others that might be his uh, his first masterpiece. In fact, maybe a couple of these. What do you think? Yeah, I, I could go there. I mean, I, I could I could put La Chienne as a, again as a masterpiece, uh, possibly. I mean, I and maybe well, I, maybe a day in the country if we if we had the full version. But <laughs> we could talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I think and actually I think Tony is very important. Uh, and yeah. and Tony Tony is and that's T O N I. It's it's an important film. There's not an American release. There's a Masters of Cinema uh, release in the UK. Yeah. Which, but out of print, unfortunately. So it is yeah. out of print. Yes, I have seen that, and you have that, right? I do. Yeah, I grabbed a copy of it. It's a nice. I mean, it's a nice disc. It's got a. It's got a booklet, um, and uh, a video appreciation. Um, but yeah, it's a hard film to find. It really is referred to as the first neorealist film, as I understand. Uh, again, from 1934. I mean, we wouldn't see uh, the really the first in the Italian neorealism films until. Um, Obsession, I believe it is, from mm. Visconti in 1943. So, an important film in that way. Yeah, it's a precursor to neorealism for sure, and and it's it's kind of a it's definitely the most realistic uh, as far as as far as neorealism or portraying reality goes. Uh, right, especially for Renoir. Yeah. For Renoir, uh, mm-hmm. but it's worth noting that Visconti actually worked on this film. He was an AD, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, there's there's definitely a connection between a direct connection from this until uh, to neorealism. So it would be nice. Hey, Criterion, <laughs> bring this yeah. one to the to uh, the states. Uh, I think there'd be a market for it. No. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know if it's quite a masterpiece. Uh, you know, I, I can understand you know, people appreciating it. I, I don't know. It was interesting. You know, you talked about the the binge watching that I did. And this one does certainly stand out from his other films because of that just realist quality of it. Um, but, you know, it was nice to kind of take that a uh, little bit of a, a diversion uh, from it. So and it, it does talk early about how it is. It's based on the research of uh, Jacques Levert. Uh, in preparation for his uh, his novel called Tony, um, mm-hmm. it, it right. takes it, it is a true story. Um, this it, or at least is based on a true story. Uh, takes place in South France, and um, you know is uh, certainly a, a a mix of uh, of people. Um, I mean, it really is important for this time frame. I mean, you talk about timely movies, Aaron. This is about. Uh, uh, immigrants right um, (laughs) foreign workers yes in the south of france so you know certainly uh, an important um, thing to consider uh, this day and age so and i think it's another uh, example of how renoir you know he's he's adapting films from other works but he's really using his own uh, style and uh, forging his own identity his filmmaking identity and this one, you know, he basically just had a template. Uh, in fact, it's it's kind of funny. In IMDb, it's credited as uh, 
based upon material compiled by Jacques LeBay. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, and and Renoir is also credited as as a writer on the film. Uh, and yeah, it's it very politically charged. Uh, one of the the beginning of really his politically charged films, uh, although they all have a class element. Uh, but this one, yeah, he he does use the uh, the, the foreign workers. There's a uh, this again very very much in the news at that point. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th- there was a call a call at the time really for a suppression of immigration, you know, from the mm-hmm. right. So that again sounds familiar. Sounds uh, familiar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there's a slogan at the time that was you know France for the French. So mm-hmm. you know I'm surprised we haven't heard America for America or the United States for America. Um, you know, at this point, but yeah, yeah. it was a very divisive politically political moment, uh, far right wing versus far left wing. Uh, mm-hmm. and of course we know how that turned out, uh, much to the chagrin of everybody in the world actually. Uh, but no, as far as filmmaking goes, I think this, actually I'm really partial to this film. I think it's mm-hmm. brilliant. I think it's, uh, again, um, Renoir becoming, uh, an amazing filmmaker you know I, i'd say that la chienne is definitely one of his early masterpieces but i'd say as far as becoming a filmmaker i'd say this is really the mm. first time you really get a six mm. yeah and even though this is a kind of like i said an outlier because uh, it's more neorealism and it would influence films differently uh, it's definitely a stepping stone to uh, the the real masterpieces and uh, and yeah, again, we talk about direct sound. There's a lot of direct sound here. Uh, Definitely, yeah. He used a lot of uh, amateur actors as well, which um, was, it, you know, he was an actor's director, but this is different because he, well, there were some professionals, but kind of like neorealism, he made use of the amateurs because that's how they lived, and he wanted to capture the, uh, a realistic quality. So I, I think he accomplished it here. I, I love this film. Yeah, yeah, I, I think uh, it, it's certainly it's one like these types of films that kind of grow with me too uh, in estimation. I mean, you, you did mention the um, you know the use of music. I mean, it's really uh, or uh, diegetic music from uh, the men on the train who provide the music. You know, singing and and playing guitar, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know impressive. I I like how um, you know the the kind of almost plain and functional cinematography um, per Republic of Images, a little bit influenced by, or similar to the work of Mar- uh, Marcel Pagnol, who was, wasn't producer, but guaranteed mm-hmm. distribution, um, you know, through his, uh, his company. So yeah, it really, I would say, um, I mean, it, certainly looks down on those who affect social control. I mean, the, this is told from the, the standpoint of these, or from the viewpoint of these uh, these immigrants. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and uh, again, very politically charged mm-hmm. and uh, and very uh, a big controversial response probably, but today we just see it as a film uh, that portrays uh, a reality. So I think it's... Uh, right. It's it's important for both Renoir and for just looking back at French society. So yeah, yeah, a couple. You know, one shot really that I, I think probably the shot that stood out to me the most, Aaron, was the I don't remember and going back and watching uh, the other Renoir films. The there's the the scene that again I won't give away, but you have Albert and J- J- Josepha looking right at the camera. Uh, the yeah. very yeah. charged scene there. So um, that again you know, stood out to me and you could see, you know, like you said, there's just the, the growth of a, a filmmaker, especially making um, such a uh, realist type of film. 
For sure. And and again, speaking of uh, Josepha, there's a uh, a little bit of a, I say uh, that women aren't, well, actually, no, I'm sorry. In this one, Josepha was raped, wasn't she? Yes. And she had to get married. So yeah, I'm sorry. You you saw this recently. I, it's been a couple years or a few years since I've seen it, but um, right. but yeah. Uh, so yeah, women kind of a love triangle exactly, too. You know, with yeah, the three of them too. So yep, those triangles harkens back to La Chienne, but uh, but Tony yeah. and and Tony again was kind of the victim. Uh, I, I don't know if I would call him a schlub like uh, like uh, in La Chienne, but um, but a, a, sort of a passive character. So anyway, anyway yeah. that, that could be one we could dig into someday if. Uh, if we ever get a, a stateside release. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, should we talk about a day in the country? Yeah, 19, 1936. So this was, um, you know, this is one where, um, these are actually from the titles at the beginning that, um, I, I guess, circumstances beyond his control, he was unable to finish the movie. So he was, he was in America or uh, brought to America at the, before this film was finished. So... Um, it was presented without modifications, and there's a couple of title cards that are added, which you notice, especially you know, close towards the end of the film, to kind of aid in comprehension of what was going on. So you assume there was you know some additional scenes that should have been um, you know added there. Um, so yeah, but it's it's interesting. I, one of the things I took away from this too, Aaron, is uh, in the introduction, always fun to to watch those from uh, Renoir. It's, you know, about a 40 minute film. And um, he had talked about right. doing it with two others, um, kind of doing um, more of a, an omnibus film. But this one, I, I love how he talks about how he's in favor, uh, in favor of plagiarism. Um, you know, he's saying he, if you're to encourage a new renaissance of the arts, um, you should encourage plagiarism. And I think really what he's talking about there, I don't think he's really advocating for plagiarism, but um, that he is advocating for, you know, utilizing your influences and don't, don't be afraid to, you know, to, um, you know, utilize your influence and be influenced by others. Mm -hmm. So it's a nice, uh, nice introduction. I've never heard someone kind of advocating for plagiarism directly. But De Palma is, some others might, might be okay with it. Yeah, yeah it, it really was a troubled shoot. Uh, they had a lot of weather problems, and so and then they had to finish it because Renoir had to leave. I, he made uh, the lower depths after after this, and then the the, the they were and Becker finished some of it. I, I say finished. You know, they had to put some title cards on it at the beginning right. of the ending, uh, and then make the ending uh, really just edit it together, um, and it didn't come out until after the war because. Uh, I forget the name of the producer had it had to leave. Uh, he he was Jewish, so he had to leave the country because of the political environment. Um, so I, there's also uh, I I did write about this back when I was blogging, and so I, I talked about that at length. And uh, um, David Blakesley, our good friend, he also wrote a blog about it for Criterion Cast. So I'll put both those links in the show notes. Um, and so I'll be just kind of brief on, uh, on with my comments, but. Uh, well, one thing, uh, there's also a Faulkner, speaking of Chris Faulkner, uh, there's a piece on the disc about him, um, and yep. he, he talks about how political Renoir was and uh, how involved he was with the Popular Front. But um, 
but this actually was is kind of not a political film. This is one of the least political films, and it's very much a romantic film. Absolutely, yeah. you could say see, there's a little bit of class in there with the mm-hmm. the, the the people uh, in the living in the country. Yeah, uh, but versus but I the think, Parisians. Yeah, right, right. Uh, kind of like Baudou, maybe. Uh, yeah. But I, I think what really makes this uh, special is the romantic element. Uh, I think there's, we talk about poetic realism. There's a lot of poetry here. Uh, and we talk about those silent cutaways. Uh, those happen here. Uh, and, and I think there's also a direct connection to the artist, uh, the father. Um, you know, I, I mentioned mm. that he grew up in Aswah in the countryside. And I, I recall, I don't recall exactly where this was shot, but I, I, my memory is that it, she was shot in a lot of the areas where uh, Pierre Auguste painted. And I, I think that you see, especially the boating sequences, you really do kind of see the landscapes that uh, his Absolutely. father liked to draw. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, there, this is a, a Renoir film in a couple of different respects. Uh, so, and I, I thought it's interesting that you said you, you didn't admire it because, or you think that you would have admired the longer version more. I actually, I think that I, I love the length that it is, and mm. even mm-hmm. though it's, you know, that's not the way it was intended, it's, you know, kind of a perfect storm made this beautiful movie, and uh, so, so yeah, I, I'm really partial to this, and you, you can read my review to find out more about why. Yeah, I meant to, to read it uh, before that. Yeah, and I, I think the only reason it, you know, it just feels, um, you know, doing the title cards, I just felt like I, I knew that there was more there. And I wanted to see it, but you know, I can definitely see that. You know, it, it's kind of a, it's almost like a love letter uh, mm-hmm. to landscapes, right? Um, you know, and so capturing that in forty minutes, there's just something really beautiful about that. I, I'm, I, I'm with you. I mean, it's it's certainly nice the way it's presented. I, I love the shots of that are really first person shots. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think are you know where the camera is just capturing slowly the uh, the countryside. I mean, one of the things I noted about how it, this is a short film, but it absolutely takes its time um, with those shots of the shoreline and the water oh, yeah. and yeah. you know the time it takes for coming and going. You know, going to the countryside and um, you know just the it's you know, a patient the, film. Yeah, you know, for and forty minutes long. So mm-hmm. you know, I mean, obviously not not a lot really happens, but. Um, so if you're looking for, you know, the latest, uh, action film, this is not one to go to, but yeah, it's, it's, it's lovely. Again, it's a pip. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's charming. And, uh, yeah, yeah so I, I do adore the film. I, I think it really is something special. And, and I think as far as the poetic realism aspect, I, I think you, what you see here, these little, uh, like I said, patient, uh, moments, uh, even the, the little, playfulness uh, with the the townspeople and right. and, and their seduction I, I think yeah it's fun I think you do, do see some of that that playful charm in grand illusion uh, mm. of course that one is making more of a more of a statement about war but whereas this is making a statement just about uh, the people and uh, it's not always positive you know these people have ulterior motives but um, sure yeah yeah, but it's so playful in that way. You know, it's mm-hmm. I, I love some of the lines like, you know, if babies were born, every time you fool around, the world would be overpopulated. Yes. <laughs> it's just you know, a lot of fun stuff there. Very French, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and it, it really opens up, too. I, I mean, uh, I noted here how there is a, you do see Jean Renoir plays uh, Uncle Poulain uh, right. as a character. And, he's fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's fun. And th- there's, um, I think, one of my favorite shots, the ones that really stick out is, 
is the kind of long shot from uh, her perspective of the shoreline, but also mm-hmm. um, there's the the scene where um, the two men are like, you know, let's check out the dairy maids, and the the windows just open, mm-hmm. and you just get this great music, right, and you see right. them, you know, in the uh, the, the meadow there, just a, a lovely kind of opening um, of the uh, the film uh, by Renoir. I like that a lot. Yeah, and of course the ending too, and he, he, I, I won't spoil yeah. it because it's a 40-minute film, but I, I'll just say that uh, they they ended the film, and then they tacked on another ending, and again, the poetic realism, the the, the romance is definitely there, and uh, yeah. and there there's one shot in particular that, uh, that's just a look that's uh, among the most powerful, I think, in his uh, library, so... Yeah. Yeah, uh, and both. It's funny how both endings really kind of work. I mean, I think it, the film could have ended at both places, and yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's a, a light film, pleasant, um, and uh, and yeah, kind of a break from a lot of the uh, the angst of the time. So yeah, no, it's it's a, a relaxing diversion, and I, th- I think it's a good way to end this episode. Uh, yeah, <laughs> on, on a high point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> As we certainly. get into the the war and uh, the ugliness, uh, uh, aristocracy, and everything. So. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, uh, uh, that's. I think we covered realism, social, political. So, what do you think of uh, early Renoir? Uh, you know, you just binge watched uh, a whole director almost. Yeah, I I liked it. Uh, I liked it a lot. I mean, it's uh, really. I, I love watching films this way. I mean, I love to dig into kind of. I mean, the downside is I don't didn't take as much time for supplements, but going chronologically, you could see a type of growth that I think I, you know, I, I touched on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Renoir is, his filmmaking to me really is subtle. So it's kind of takes some time to, I, I think, see the man uh, as a filmmaker and what he tries to do. And so, you know, going through some of the things, you know, like uh, Christopher Faulkner pointed out, like the, you know, the use of sound um, in, um uh, Purge Bay Bay and really taking that on. And mm-hmm. like I mentioned um, before with uh, really how people interact with each other and uh, what's going on in La Chienne uh, at the end with life just going on and these uh, these other events um, that people people miss and that, um, you know, just the violent nature of people that, you know, again, you don't see in, in a day in the country, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was fun to see all of that uh, kind of come together. Um, one of the things that uh, Republic of Images, again, pointed out how, you know, he, he learns to use uh, the characters once he hears the characters talk, again, the, the use of sound. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that that uh, that tone of voice, the rhythm, the emotional undertones. He is able to kind of show the truth uh, of a character um, through through the use of sound. So it really, you know, it's important to talk about the silent films. And uh, obviously, as we transition into um, some of the later Renoir, uh, when we talk about him there, it's it's really important to, you know, to see how, um, you know, the use of sound really helped him uh, develop uh, how he, he treats his characters. Yeah, and I should mention that uh, Day in the Country has a lot of direct sound, uh, probably the most yeah. direct sound of, of these, uh, even though it's a shorter maybe like percentage wise the most uh, direct sound yeah, yeah. i i th- think renoir of course as you know i i'm i'm a big fan but uh yeah this is a good good way to see how he developed his uh, his style and um so do you have any any favorites of the the batch that we've um, covered yeah i mean i think for me my favorite would be um again la Chienne, i i think would be my favorite uh i i would put um 
it's really tough because I have seen Voodoo before, but I'd probably put Tony and uh, Day in the Country right behind La Chienne. I just, I, it just feels like to me La Chienne is the kind of the an early culmination of his work, and it, it is, mm-hmm. um, you know, his second sound film, but just really kind of gets uh, Renoir in his early films, and I, I think will again uh, influence his later films. I haven't seen a lot of his later films other than Rules of the Game, so I'm just you know interested to see how that comes together but for oh, me that was you the, haven't seen grand illusion film. i have not oh <laughs> wow I, this is gonna be fun yeah yeah uh, so right. yeah I, i'd probably i'd say la chienne and you know day in the country for some of the reasons we talked about and and tony i think does you know you're right does need to be um released by you know criterion or someone else and and voodoo just for uh michelle simone's performances is, is um you know must see yeah, uh, well, my p- favorite, and I kind of got just gushed about it five minutes ago, is, is A Day in the Country. Uh, I, I just think, for all the reasons I, I mentioned uh, uh, previously, it's just a beautiful film. Yeah, And I agree with you that La Chienne is very important and, and stands on its own. And it's actually, as an early film, it's it's pretty well, it's pretty accomplished, uh, I think. Yeah. You you definitely see uh, everything that made, uh, made Renoir such a tremendous filmmaker. And yeah, and I, I like Tony a lot, too. Um, as, if I were to pick a performance, though, even though I the film is not as uh, not as doesn't hold up to the others, I think uh, Michelle Simone in, in Boodoo is uh, is the best performance. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it's it's hard not to go with that, and you know, even even though he's, you know, he's literally chewing the scenery and chewing his bread, and it's uh, it is it is certainly the the performance of this this era. Um, yeah. yeah, and and for female performance, I'd say uh, Sylvia Bataille in um, in uh, Day in the Country. Even mm. though she does she does a lot without uh, without words, um, I, I take her over Catherine any day. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, that's a good good choice, good choice. Um, one uh, one thing I would just wanted to mention too, just regarding influences, um, you know, I, I did notice that uh, um, Renoir, and I, I think that's part of this era too, but he loves using. Um, you know, those fades to black. And uh, I was thinking of maybe, you know, a later filmmaker, um, Olivier Assayas, who also, you know, now as a modern filmmaker uses uh, fades. Yeah. I thought maybe he was an influence, but he actually refers more to Robert Bresson as a cinematic influence. So yeah, um, I could see yeah, both. Yeah, maybe. I, I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure both. He's a he's a student of film. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, so, that's early Renoir. Yeah, I think we I, th- I think we covered it. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot so. <laughs> more to say, and uh, obviously, you know, a lot of films that we weren't able to see, and uh, we'll we'll keep plugging. We'd love to see them in an Eclipse set or a uh, Blu-ray box set. Um, so Criterion, would love to see it. If you're listening, yes, uh, I'm going to show up at your off at your office and and say night at the crossroads. So. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well. Door. Next, I we in the French series, it'll be 2017, but we're going to cover uh, René Claire, Marcel Pagnol, speaking of which, and uh, right. Ray, Raymond Bernard. Uh, so uh, that more early 30s stuff. So it's fun to uh, keep keep going on this uh, this track. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, some good good stuff there. I can't wait to delve into some, especially Claire and Pagnol. I, I've watched the the films in the Bernard Eclipse series, and uh, really beautiful set. So uh, mm-hmm. you know, look forward to talking about those. Yeah, where can folks find you, Aaron? Uh, A West five hundred five. I uh, just put up my uh, favorite Criterion's of the year. So, yeah, nice. not not releases, but uh, the, the movies. So I, well, that, that's Letterbox. What am I talking about? DSNT on, on Letterbox. 
There you go. Yeah, we got to check that out. Nice, nice list there from Aaron. Uh, you can find me, Mark Herney, H-U-R-N-E, at Mark Herney on Twitter. Uh, you can find Criterion Close-Up at Criterion CU on Twitter, uh, Facebook slash Criterion Close-Up, and uh, would love some more iTunes reviews. Uh, we always plug those. We need some some star ratings and some thoughts on what you think. What do you think about the uh, early uh, French films, and do you have some favorites? Um, mm-hmm. So, All right. Au revoir. Au revoir. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Au revoir, Aaron, and thank you for listening to Criterion Close-Up. <laughs> <laughs>